than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look! Up in the sky! It's a bird! It's a plane! It's Superman! Superman rocketed to Earth as an infant when the distant planet Krypton exploded. And who, disguised as Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter for the Daily Planet, fights a never-ending battle for truth, justice, and freedom with superpowers far beyond those of ordinary mortals? It's Superman, Superman, Superman. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 86 of the Man of Screen podcast. I am your host, Mike Zumo. In this episode, we're going to cover episodes 5 through 8 of season 3 of Filmation's The New Adventures of Superman. And episodes 3 and 4 of season 3 of The Adventures of Superboy. That will include the Superman episodes, The Team of Terror, and Reign of Iron, as well as the Superboy episodes, King Superboy, and Double Trouble, Double Doom. And believe it or not, after I finish my coverage of this episode, I will be halfway through Season 3 and two episodes away from the end of uh, my coverage of the Filmation cartoon. So that's you know, not as quite a, as big of a journey as through the adventures of Superman, but another milestone nonetheless. Alright, before I get into the business of this week's episode, and excuse my voice, I'm battling a bit of a cold. I don't anticipate it getting better anytime soon, so... And I need time to edit this, so here we go. My only bit of feedback for this particular episode comes from Dave McElvenny. Dave is writing in on Man of Screen, episode number 77. Dave writes, Greetings, Mike. A fun episode again. I'll focus mainly on the Superboy segment. In your commentary on Operation Counter-Invasion, you wonder about how the military will contact Superboy, with some general called Chief Parker. As I recall, in the comics, the blinking lamp signal in the Ken Hall that told Superboy he was needed was remotely connected to Chief Parker, the President, and, I think, Professor Lang. And the lamp would blink in a different way depending on which person was trying to contact. I'm going to put Dave on pause for a minute. Apparently, this is uh, the precursor to what we can all do now with our smartphones and put different ringers with different people. So, back to Dave. It's certainly a good ploy on Superboy's part to convince the aliens that the superpowers he and Crypto exhibit are common to all people of Earth, but it's a good thing the aliens didn't test this by grabbing some random Earth person. So much for the, for the aliens' superior intellect. In the Jinx Circus, I too thought of the circus in which the Flying Graces performed being threatened with accidents by the bad guy. At the end, I also thought at this time, unlike in the Stolen Elephant episode of The Adventures of Superman, we do get to see Superboy and Crypto actually perform in the circus. I'm going to stick Dave on pause for a minute again and, uh, you know, I didn't think of the uh, Stolen Elephant when I was talking about this about this episode, and honestly, as far as episodes go of The Adventures of Superman, the less you think of the Stolen Elephant, really, the better. But I did mention that, you know, it was disappointing that, although I knew they could never do this practically in the, se- in the series, that to show Superman actually flying an elephant in. But, you know, the cartoons open us up to so many more possibilities, so many more things that can be done. So, it's fun seeing Superboy perform in the circus. So, back to Dave's letter. And Luthor Strikes Again, of course... It's always good to see Lex Luthor and see him with red hair and beard, even if it is a disguise. As for Luthor's carelessness about the lead paint, I'm old enough to remember those days and lead paint was so common that Luthor may not have even have thought of the fact that it had lead in it. To him, as to many people in those days, it was just paint. Live long and prosper, Dave. Alright, I've got one thing to say about the lead paint in Luthor Strikes Again. Yes, while I agree that lead paint was common in the 60s, I would like to think that Lex Luthor would be smart enough, you know, not to keep lead around. Anything with lead around. He knows that, he should know at least, that lead 
blocks the kryptonite radiation from harming Superman. So he wouldn't want anything in the area that could help Superman thwart his plans. You know, we I expect a little bit more of the greatest criminal mind of our time. And you should too. But I do agree that to many people in those days, it was just paint. And obviously, though, the writers were thinking about it because it led to the uh, conclusion of the story. So if Oscar Bensall or George Cashton, I don't remember who actually wrote this story without going back to look it up, knew enough that there was lead and paint, then you know what? I would expect Lex Luthor to know more than George Cashton or Oscar Bensall. But I have talked about other cartoons growing up in the 80s, and I wonder if this is similar to that, where, you know, this was especially true of watching... Things like Thundercats or He-Man to the extent, Masters of, of the Universe when I was growing up. And and I it always seemed by watching that, you could almost tell that the heroes were almost irrelevant to how the plot turned out. Because regardless of what the hero does, the villains would have beaten themselves anyway. So I wonder if this is kind of a precursor to that, where Luther kind of beats himself despite Superman's actions or lack thereof. Just food for thought. And I have no further feedback at the moment, so I'm going to take a quick break, play a podcast promo, and then I'm going to come back with... Superman episode, Team of Terror, and King Superboy. Hang around, folks. In 1977, the world changed. The film industry was transformed. The popular culture rocked. And young minds forever altered. Star Wars arrived. And nothing would ever be the same again. Though everyone wasn't affected in the same way, everyone was affected. This is my Star Wars story. My Star Wars Story. Monthly at MyStarWarsStory.com All right, welcome back, folks. Both of the episodes I'll be covering in this segment were originally broadcast on September 28th, 1968, and I'm going to start with the Superman episodes, The Team of Terror, and that's obviously part 22. And this was written by Oscar Bensall, and our synopsis will be brought to you by supermanhomepage.com, your number one source for Superman information on the web. An alien, Satana, that's Satana with an S, not a Z, as in Zatana, from the planet Quanta, tries stealing nuclear energy from a power plant on Earth to attack her planet. When Superman stops her attack on the power plant, she helps the warlock by using Plasto to make his wand's magic ruby emit kryptonite to weaken Superman. Superman saves Jimmy and Lois from the warlock and stops him, then stops Satana, despite her sending an army of Plasto monsters at him. Alright, so we're going to have a double threat in this episode of uh, Satana, this alien from the planet Quanta, and uh, the warlock is just going to stumble into this episode and... Uh, help her out, cause some trouble. So this episode starts with a spaceship trying to escape a comet, and Satana here is a, she's got her, I don't know what this guy is supposed to be, he's some kind of alien, he looks like a monkey. Even his name sounded kind of like Beppo, but it wasn't exactly Beppo, it was something else, Bimpo or Dimpo or something like that. I apparently didn't care enough to write it down. So they're headed toward Earth, and they want the planet's nuclear energy so she can, uh, like the synopsis said, bring, bring it back and release it on Quanta, so... I'll go back, Yimpo, but first I must locate the source of atomic energy. Ah, look, Yimpo, the sun-served planet Earth has atomic power generating plants. We shall rob Earth of the power that unleash it on Quanta. She's the queen, and, uh, nice queen. It doesn't appear as though she has much use for her own planet. Now, <clears throat> the next scene takes us to the Daily Planet, and, uh... 
One thing that annoys me in the narration sometimes is that Lois is always uh, referred to as a girl reporter. You know, as if it's some kind of oddity, which it may have been in the 1960s. I don't know enough about newspaper culture in the 1960s, but if I had to guess, women probably did more feature work back then, while the men did more of the hard news. I have nothing to base that on. It's just a kind of an assumption I'm making based on the culture and relations between the genders at the, at the time. You know, even the fact that Lois Lane was a reporter in 1938 Action Comics was way ahead of its time. Lois Lane has always been a bit of a trailblazing character in the sense that she was doing uh, jobs that were primarily done by men up until, you know, modern times. You know, I don't think the idea of Lois Lane being in the position she was so outlandish in the 70s, but especially the late 70s when Superman the movie came out, but I would have to think in the 60s and earlier, a woman in a position like Lois Lane probably is more the exception than the rule. And I'm actually kind of surprised in 86 episodes, this is the first time I'm actually thinking about that. I've just always, I guess I've just always taken it for granted that Lois Lane was at the Daily Planet. So either way, uh, the traffic light is green both ways, and that puts a bus and a truck on a collision course. And uh, Clark disappears, and I like seeing Lois confused as Superman shows up. You know, Clark is with her, then all of a sudden he's gone, and he really doesn't say anything to her. He might have made some kind of lame excuse to disappear, but all she knows is that one moment he's next to her, and the second moment he's gone. So, you know, Lois's confusion with regards to Clark dis- Clark's disappearances, so he can turn to Superman, never gets old. And I'm glad to see that they're, do- they're doing a little bit more of that in Season 3. So Superman shows up and moves the bus out of the way. But uh, Satana, meanwhile, absorbing the energy from the nuclear power plant, and uh, that Superman... That's where Superman notices the trouble is. So Superman gets the uh, lowdown from the utility workers. What's the trouble here? The main feed line from the atomic plant up river's gone dead, Superman. Could it be a break in the line? No, if there is, it could take more than 24 hours to find it and repair it. Well, then this is a job for Superman. Away! And he's going to go do the work that the humans can't do. He's going to put some wires back together, see if he can restore some power. And uh, Satana's rocket is illustrated as hovering over the nuclear power plant and kind of... Looks like it's drawing lightning to itself, and that's kind of how she's collecting the atomic power from the plant. So they're trying to shake her loose, and Satana is going to teach these Earthers a lesson by turning a plastic container into a giant blob, and that's going to destroy the the Earth soldiers. Well, it might be able to destroy the Earth soldiers, but it's definitely not going to do anything to our Man of Steel here, who basically stands between the uh, the blob's electric powers and the soldiers, and then Superman destroys the plasto creature with uh, one punch. So now the nuclear reactor is going to explode because of uh, how much energy the rocket is drawing from it. And Superman prevents that from happening basically by picking up a large wire and welds it together with his heat vision. And I guess that stopped either a meltdown or an overload or something. So after all of that, and if the good, as if the good guys weren't having enough trouble, the warlock, like I said, wanders into this episode and decides now is a good time to start harassing Lois and Jimmy. But Superman hears the signal watch and turns around leaving Satana alone and Superman goes after the warlock. You know, typical Superman, uh, he might be dealing with an important crisis situation in Satana here, but the minute he hears that signal watch, he's off to Jimmy's side like some kind of lapdog. Coming to your friend's aid is one thing, but you know what? And this is a hard de- determination for Superman to make, but sometimes you have to have priorities. I'm guessing more lives are being put at stake at the moment because of what Satan is doing, so by taking care of that problem, that would save the most lives. But anyway, after the warlock disappears when Superman shows up, you know, the usual trick, this gives Satana an idea, and she's going to use the warlock. And she has been inspired by his escape from Superman, so she has an idea. Please, who are you? Queen of Quanta, and I want you, Warlock, to destroy Superman for me with your magic ruby. But my ruby has no effect on him. Only kryptonite can harm Superman. 
kryptonite, eh? Very well. Yimpo, cover that ruby with plasto. Plasto become kryptonite. There, warlock. Kryptonite, plus the magic power of your ruby. And she wants him to use his ruby at, to destroy Superman. But apparently the warlock knows his ruby has no effect on Superman, which is interesting because Superman is vulnerable to magic. You know, if you hold up Superman's two main weaknesses, kryptonite is right up there as the one everybody knows. Fewer people, but it's a weakness just the same, is that his abilities have no effect on magic. So Superman would be no less vulnerable to magic than a normal human would be. He might still be able to act on magical objects with his superpowers, but... They can hurt him or even kill him just as easily as a kitchen knife would kill a human. If used improperly, of course. I'm a big proponent of kitchen safety. But however, uh, the Warlock's Ruby's limitations are no matter to Satana, as he does indeed tell her about Kryptonitis as, main, as Superman's main weakness, and she uses her own powers, whether it's magic or science we don't understand yet, and she uses the Plasto to make Warlock's Ruby shoot kryptonite. So the next day, the Daily Planet crew is getting a shot of a monument in uh, one of the city's main parks, and uh, the Warlock sends a giant boulder down the park at him. I'm getting a very uh, nice uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark vibe here, with boulder rolling down the street toward uh, Lois, Jimmy, and Clark. And the announcer asks, as the first part ends, how Clark will save his friends without revealing himself. You know, before we move on to, our, to my coverage of the second part of this, I have a very easy answer to the narrator's questions. They are both able-bodied. None of them appear to be paralyzed. They can move out of the way. The boulder doesn't appear to be going fast enough that if they each ran to the side off of the path that they wouldn't be able to get out of the way quickly. That boulder doesn't look like it's bearing down on them at top speed. So there's no reason why they can't just jump out of the way and let this thing hit the monument. But they don't. And that's part two. Starts Clark goes into the bushes, changes into Superman, and punches the boulder. So apparently that was how he did it without revealing his secret. Now, so Superman is attacked by the kryptonite-emitting ruby, and now the ship sends out a giant pink snake. Looks very threatening. Uh, it's a plasto snake like everything else that Satana sends from her ship. But I guess with a weakened Superman, this thing is easily able to squeeze the life out of him. If you remember from part one that the uh, Satana, that the uh, plasto blob really had no effect on Superman. But apparently this kind of works against... Satana and Warlock, as apparently the plasto from the snake is blocking the kryptonite rays, so Superman is kind of able to uh, pop the snake, so to speak, and that chases the Warlock away. The Warlock knows that he can't go toe-to-toe with Superman. I mean, he, although, with his magical powers, he should be a more formidable villain, but I don't know, he's just not. More like a cheap illusionist than anything else. So Warlock disappears and sits the top of a flagpole, and he has contacted Satana, who said that she would... Basically kill him. I forgot exactly what the word she used. If he failed to kill Superman. Oh, and, and Satana has told the Warlock that she would liquidate him if he failed to kill Superman. Warlock? Satana? Where are you? Look at your ruby! I warned you, if Superman escaped, I'd liquidate you! No, no, please, Satana. Please give me one more chance. Very well, one more chance. But remember, Warlock, I shall be in space watching you! Killing him is not enough. 
apparently she wants to turn him into a big steam pile of goo if he fails to defeat Superman. So uh, Warlock scores another chance as Lois and Jimmy are just hanging out around the park even though they just nearly got run over by a boulder. So now Warlock brings the statue to life because bringing inanimate objects to life is part of his shtick. But Superman uh, catches up with him, causes him to drop the wand, and Superman is not playing games here. He he has had enough of the Warlock's crap. If you don't tell me what Satana is up to, I'll maroon you on a barren planetoid. No, no, not that. I'll talk. She collected the nuclear power to use against her enemies on Quanta. Great Scott, she could blow that planet right out of space. Officer, take him. I'm going after Satana. Up! Up! And away! And he threatens to maroon the warlock on a barren planetoid, which, if you think about it, is kind of an extreme punishment. And the warlock begs for anything but that, so he confesses to what Satana's plan is. Can you imagine that? The warlock actually believed Superman would actually strand him on a barren planetoid. What else has this Superman done? Did he? Le- I wonder if he left two people uh, who knew his secret identity at the top of a mountain, where they eventually fell to their death. But I guess he's beyond irritated at this point. So Satana is taking the atomic energy to Quanta, with Superman in hot pursuit. And she's going to use her plasto to fire an atomic rocket on the capital city. Superman saves the city and is going to fly directly into her ship and she attacks him with more plasto, which we've already seen has no real effect on Superman. So she's going to send all of it after Superman and then he banters with the plasto creatures for a minute and basically defeats them just kind of by moving side to side. The animation doesn't really show him doing a whole lot. You know, the shirt rip has been more dynamic than this. You might see a head move to the right or to the left, but maybe his legs will shift but as far as any real move, Superman doesn't display it. And then it suddenly dawns on Satana that to change her plasto to kryptonite and that should take care of Superman. Fortunately, Superman remembered that a regular plasto blocked kryptonite and got out of the way and that gave him the chance to arrest Satana. And now for the ending. The cat ran away and never showed up again? Yes, Jimmy. He ran into these bushes somewhere. Hi. Oh, Clark, what happened to you? I, uh, I dived into the bushes and, well, I sort of blacked out, I guess. How do you feel now? I feel, uh, bushed. <laughs> oh, Clark, you make the worst jokes. Come on, Jimmy. Lois and Jimmy are looking for Clark, who feels bushed after hiding into the bushes for all of the uh, second part of the story. And Lois commented to Clark after he said he was bushed, you know, kind of a pun on sitting in the bushes. Uh-huh. Lois comments that he makes the worst jokes. And now, I, I guess this is the first time I'm getting the feeling that if all the bad jokes are being done on purpose, you know, if it, I don't know if they had this kind of payoff in mind, but maybe Lois' dialogue is a, kind of a note on the uh, writer's part that the uh, jokes at the end of the episodes are getting a bit lame, and maybe they need to either eliminate the jokes or step up and do better ones. Well, either way, we will just kind of move on from here. We'll go right into the Superboy episode, King Superboy. This is also written by Oscar Benzel. When a small sun appears shooting off wild electrical currents which cause havoc on Earth, Superboy and Crypto fly into space to investigate. They destroy the exploding sun and land on a nearby planet where they are told that the inhabitants there, who believe Superboy is the boy god of their prophecies, that the exploding sun and the others like it are weapons and used against them by other species living on the dark side of the planet. Superboy and Crypto distract the dragon-like creature on guard, save prisoners, and destroy the machine, creating the small suns, and fly back to Earth. 
All right, so this episode starts with an exploding sun, which sends a whole bunch of random solar rays to uh, Earth, wreaking all kinds of destruction. Homes and trees are destroyed. Clark is working in the Kent General Store when he hears a radio report, and he changes into Superboy and is off to fight this. And Superboy is joined by Crypto when they see the rays, and they create kind of a wind tornado to quiet them down and stop them from destroying the Earth. So, score one for the superheroes there. So, and then they fly toward the cranky sun, which looks as though it's on fire. It's bubbling, and if an animation can make an inanimate object look angry, this artwork is definitely doing it. Superboy and Crypto are jumping on fragments, and that seems to have calmed the sun down for now. And Superboy is greeted by these aliens who worship Superboy as a god. Behold, who saved us from the deadly sun! It is the fearless boy god forecast in our legends! Fearless who? Now wait, I have no business interfering in your war. We implore you to destroy the crystalloid artificial sun generator. Before it destroys us? Hold it. You mean those crystalloid people sent up that ball of fire? Aye, and they will surely release others soon. Well, that's a different matter. Those artificial suns are also a threat to Earth. Okay, I'll destroy the sun generator. You must free our people held hostage by the crystalloids. Else they will be executed the moment you attack the generator fortress. I see. Where will I find them? On the dark side of this planet. In a compound guarded by a trained deadly beast. Check. Let's go, Crypto. Up, up, and away! And he refuses to interfere when they ask for help saying that he doesn't want to interfere with their culture, which seems to me more of like a precursor to Marlon Brando's Jor-El's You Are Forbidden to Interfere with Human History bit from the Christopher Reeve Superman films. But when Superboy learns that the crystalloids, and these are the enemies of the people Superboy knows, he goes after the sun generator because, well, it's threatening the Earth as well. So that's his justification for helping the uh, rubberoids, as we're going to learn these people are called. He won't help them win their own war, but if that machine is even batting an eye at Earth, he's ready to pluck it out. So apparently this planet is tidally locked toward its sun as it has a dark side. For those of you who don't know your astronomy, tidally locked means that a space body is uh, always faces a certain area the same way. For instance, our moon only faces the Earth on one side. Every time we look up at the moon, we see the same side of the moon because the Earth and the moon are tidally locked. The moon rotates such that the face that we see, the quote-unquote light side of the moon, is always in light. So, uh, Superboy and Crypto go over to the dark side of this planet, and uh, they find a dragon sleeping in front of it, and Crypto makes friends with the creature really quick, and they kind of start playing, flying around the screen, going up, down, all around. And apparently this alien race has the prophecy of the boy god, as is what they keep calling Superboy, and he kind of seems to brush off their worship. That's not something Superman or Superboy would really want anyway. You know, Superman, and Superboy for that matter. Both respect everybody's rights to believe as in as they choose to. No, no one should really be able to tell them differently. I know in certain parts of the world they are, but you know, fortunate for all the problems the U.S. has that we don't have to worry about such things. So, like I mentioned before, we also and this is the point where we learn that the people Superboy is helping are the rubberoids as opposed to the crystalloids who are attacking with sunballs, which Superboy kind of fights off one at a time. You know, he could use some help, but Superboy is still kind of playing with his dragon friend. Basically, what happens is uh, the the sun here, you know, it's a mini dwarf planet or whatever it's called. After Crypto joins the fight, the uh, Superboy blows the towards the crystalloids and that destroys the weapon. And so far for our ending, the rubberoids are happy that Superboy saved them. Thank you, great boy god. It will take the crystalloids thousands of years to rebuild their fortress. Then my job here is done. Let's go, Crypto. Crypto, where did that kooky dog disappear to now? 
I might have known. Come on, Crypto. Time to go home. Oh, all right, all right. I promise. We'll come back soon to visit your new friend. <laughs> up, up, and away! Crypto is still playing with the dragon. You know, we've seen this before where Crypto makes a new friend and Crypto has a hard time leaving him behind. Same thing here. But Superboy has to promise to keep, uh, to come back and let Crypto visit. Because I believe they're on another planet at this point. So, as far as those two episodes go, neither one was particularly great. I really enjoyed the Superman episodes from last week's episode. So, the two episodes that came after that, you know, not on the same level. A little bit of a letdown. So, and as far as this episode goes, you know, this one wasn't that great either. And I'm not sure why the episode was called King Superboy. It never looked as though the Rubberoids wanted Superboy to rule over them. But I guess, you know, when you think about it, Christ is considered a king. So maybe it has something to do with that. Maybe it's an early Jesus allegory, which were brought into the mainstream by Richard Donner, Superman. One of the uh, movie's contributions to society that I'm not particularly fond of. But that takes care of that. I'm going to take a quick break, play a podcast promo, and then I'm going to come back with Reign of Iron and Double Trouble, Double Doom. Hang around, folks. Star Wars, give me those Star Wars. Nothing but Star Wars, don't let them Star Wars, those here in Star Wars. Talking about Star Wars on a podcast. I'm Ryan Daly, and welcome to... And I'm the Irredeemable Shag. Dude, what are you doing? What? Give Me Those Star Wars is my show. Well, you're part of the Fire & Water Podcast Network, so it's really our show. But if you show up on the promo, people will think you're the co-host. I'm not? No, the show will have rotating guests. You just took that idea from my Justice League International podcast. You took that idea from my Secret Origins podcast. And you took that idea from Dead Both and Spies. That was my podcast! Wait a minute, wait a minute. I sang the theme song with you. So? So, technically, I appear on every episode. I'm part of the foundation of this new Star Wars show. That's... That's true. So, you want to take this from the top, or what? (sighs) I'm Ryan Daly. Join me and a galaxy of guest stars on Give Me (coughs) Those... Including the irredeemable Shag, whose voice you will technically hear on every episode. On Give Me Those Star Wars... The official Star Wars show of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Available on iTunes and Stitcher and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. All right, welcome back, folks. Both of the episodes I'm going to talk about in this segment were originally broadcast on October 5th, 1968. And we're going to start with Reign of Iron. This is written by Oscar Benzel. And our synopses are brought to you by supermanhomepage.com, your number one source for Superman information on the web. Lois is about to embark on a vacation when she spots a man by the name of Vamor. Where are you going, Lois? I really don't know, Clark. Just anywhere where there's no excitement. Clark, who's that man? Name's Vamor close friend of the scientist who was sent to jail for embezzling funds. Oh, yes, Professor Duty. Didn't he break jail when Governor Bannard refused his request for a pardon? Right, and hasn't been seen since. Hmm, 
I wonder where Doogee's hiding out. Lois follows Valmore to a remote island while Superman is busy catching a large iron sphere as a threat to Metropolis. Following that trajectory, uh, Superman realizes that the iron spheres are being bounced off an asteroid in space from an island in the Pacific by Professor Doogee and Valmore. The Professor first uses the island natives and then Lois as hostages before being thwarted by the Man of Steel and taken to jail. Alright, so this episode is going to appear to be a bit of a fun one as, uh, this professor is uh, bouncing some iron balls off of an asteroid and, and wreaking havoc with them. And we start with Clark Kent is driving Lois to the airport so Lois can go on vacation. Apparently she doesn't know where she's going, and it doesn't seem to be a very well-planned vacation on Lois's part. You know, whenever I show up at the airport, I have a pretty good idea of where I'm going. So this is when Lois and Clark see Vamor, who Clark recognizes as an associate at Professor Doogee. And being that she's going on vacation, uh... She just follows Vamor wherever he goes. So, doesn't have any bags to pack. She just kind of strolls onto the, into the ticket agent, asks for a ticket for wherever Vamor is going, and that's that. You know, Lois didn't even make that, uh, you have to go home and pack in an hour type thing that they used to do in the Adventures of Superman. I'm sure you remember that. You know, they'd have to take a plane somewhere, and Perry would yell at them, go, because you have to be on, you have to get packed and get on that plane in an hour. Can you imagine that nowadays? Having to get to the airport two or three, Sometimes three hours at a time. So we uh, jump ahead several days, and a big ball of iron falls onto the state capitol building, which happens to be Metropolis. You know, it's too spherical to be an ordinary meteor, and meteors are kind of odd-shaped because they're being acted upon by so many uh, forces. And... This appears to be solid iron, Governor. A perfectly round meteorite. This is not a meteorite. It's a man-made sphere, which was somehow dropped to Earth from space. Mighty curious. So most of which is gravity, which pulls them to Earth. So, like I said, not an ordinary meteor. And then another one falls out of the sky, and Clark claims to need to go get a camera. I guess these guys, these guys and it's uh, Professor Henderson and the governor, don't know Clark real well that he isn't a photographer. They just kind of watch him walk away. You know, he's just going to get his camera. Nothing to see there. As he changes into Superman. Then he flies up to the next ball of iron and pushes that into the water. So there's a message on one of these iron balls from Professor Doogee. So Superman sends that message to the governor. Now Superman assumes that Doogee is dropping these iron balls from a spaceship. And it's amazing how many of these uh, human scientists, Superman believes has access to a spaceship as most countries at this point in history are having trouble uh, doing everything they could to get into space. But, you know, if countries are having trouble, can you imagine all of these human scientists doing just fine to uh, getting into space? So as, as, as uh, another iron ball falls, Superman kind of pushes that up with like a volleyball, just gives it a nice little hit. So meanwhile, Lois is on some kind of tropical island interviewing some kind of old boat captain. And this island is in the uh, South Pacific region. Never heard the name, lady. Ever hear of a man called Vamor? Vamor? Oh, yeah. man named Vamor bought a motorboat from me a couple of days ago to visit the outer islands, he said. Mister, I want to rent a sailboat. I'm going to visit the outer islands, too. Apparently what we learned is that Vamor bought a motor bought a motorboat and uh, Lois is going to rent a boat of her own and check it out. You know, good old Lois. She's not letting anything uh, get in her way here. You know, I really like that in this story, Lois is kind of connecting the dots. You know, she saw the story, which was Vamor, you know, kind of followed it. And she's doing, you know, what she needs to do to get this story. She's not tagging along on Clark's story. She is not, you know, sabotaging Clark to get this story, as we saw so much in the Fleischers. She... Did all this on her own. She fought the follow of a more. She's investigating where he is. This is Lois as she's kind of meant to be, doing the investigating on her own without help from anybody. 
I really like seeing that in this episode. And so Superman in space finds an asteroid that he believes could be the, op- the base of operations for Doogee. Again, I don't know how he would get up to this asteroid, but that's something Superman is not going to reveal to us. Just a leap of logic. You know, it's logical that these that believe that these iron balls are falling from space, but I'm not sure it's so logical to think that a human professor could establish a base on the moon. But all Superman really finds here is a fresh crater. And while he's looking, Superman gets hit on the head by an iron ball. And it knocks him down. But doesn't do any damage, just kind of dazes him. So this is where, I guess, where Superman figures out that the iron balls are being sent to the asteroid. And then uh, the uh, animation shows us just that. Apparently, uh, Professor Duji is quite the pole player, as he is bouncing iron balls off of the asteroids and using them to hit specific areas of the Earth. Basically, kind of everywhere around Metropolis. So, you know, this guy is definitely good with uh, geometry, as he knows at precisely the angle at which... Uh, the iron ball has hit an, aster- hit an asteroid and bounce come to Earth to uh, hit the spot that he wants. You know, he's got to work on all these forces like Earth rotation and uh, gravity and all kinds of physics that will be involved in this. And at first, you have to figure out how he would get the uh, iron balls to uh, escape velocity anyway. You know, there's friction out on these things uh, as they're leaving the Earth's atmosphere. You know, once they get outside the atmosphere, they'll kind of just float until acted upon by another force, you know, such as the an asteroid, so... I'm not necessarily sure an iron ball would bounce off an asteroid like this, but, you know, comic book science. So Lois is in a sailboat now trying to find Vamore, and she is headed toward an uncharted island. And Superman eventually finds the same abandoned island, and he realizes that this is where Doogee is launching his iron balls from. So Superman drops in on Doogee and Vamore, and uh, he kind of yells at Doogee to stop, and we find that Doogee has taken the natives hostage and superman as you can see that there are three uh native uh basically look like anytime one of these shows needs to illustrate quote-unquote indigenous people they're indians sorry professor your little game of space billiards is over stop at once or i'll destroy the native chief and his family great galaxy one wrong move by you superman and I send 50,000 volts of electricity through the cable and the wire mess cages. Hold it, Professor. You win. Now, if you value the lives of these innocent natives, you will load a spear into my cannon. But I broke the track. Ha! You don't need a track. Do it quickly, or I'll pull the switch. You win again. So, with the natives' lives at stake, Superman kind of appears to surrender and, uh agrees to do what the professor wants and he loads the next ball into the launcher and Superman will show here that this is truly a game of inches as he only moves the gun a little bit to send the asteroid off course and not come back and hit the earth. If anybody is lucky, the immediate, these things just kind of fly right by the asteroid belt and uh, kind of go into, like I said, acted upon an outside force. Now, I'm not necessarily sure he's shooting these things at the asteroid field. The asteroid field is in Mars and Jupiter and it takes months, it takes weeks or months to get even a spaceship over to Mars, so I'm not believing that Professor Duji can really do what is being illustrated here, but, you know, like I mentioned before, comic book science. So, Vamor and Duji uh, quickly realize that Superman moved the gun. I'm not sure how Superman thought that he'd get away with that, but the narrator does a good job, as always, of telling us what's happening right in front of us, and he suggests that Superman doesn't have enough time to save the Chief, as part one ends. All right, and as part two starts, I notice that Duji looks a lot like Lex Luthor, both being bald. You know, you would think that if they're not going to use Lex Luthor for this particular episode, they design the scientist to look a little bit uh, different. You know, he's a little bit heftier than Lex is, but still. The bald-headed look is uh, definitely uh, makes you think about Luthor. And I wouldn't even thought about Luthor if they designed even him slightly different. Even if they gave him hair. That would have been enough to uh, make me not think about Lex Luthor. So Superman has safely returned the Chief 
to the natives and is among them as Duje and Vamor fly off and Duje's about to drop a rocket into the onto the volcano. Superman pushes the helicopter away and uh, harmlessly catches the rocket, which prevents a volcanic eruption. You know that will definitely improve the uh, natives' day. So suddenly, uh, Vamor is depressed and lists all of Superman's vision powers to illustrate how doomed they are. So, but they're in a submarine and. Uh, through the periscope, Doogee finds Lois, and uh, she's going to find what she came for, which was Professor Doogee. We don't stand a chance against Superman. No, he can't be. Why not? He's got telescopic vision, x-ray vision, infrared vision. Yes, but not periscope vision. Look! I don't know what she's doing here, Babur, but that's Lois Lane, Superman's close friend. Why, I saw her at the air terminal in Metropolis. Aha! She must have followed you here to get the story. Well, she'll get one all right, but it will never be printed. Up ship! Heavens! It's a marine! Professor Doogee, I think I'm in trouble. Won't you step into my parlor, Miss Lane? So Lois ends up in some kind of is caught by Doogee and is in some kind of dungeon wondering where Superman. And Superman has some trouble finding them until he decides to look under the sea, and then he spots them immediately. Meanwhile, Lois is strapped to a rocket, and Superman kind of spins around, and uh, as she's shot into the air, he unties her from the rocket, causing her to fall. I'm not sure why he needed Lois to fall, but he could have just picked her up, but I guess uh, letting her fall and uh, having to catch her is much more dramatic than simply untying her and catching her as the rocket kind of goes on its course. But the rocket does land in the volcano, and that activates it, and uh, Superman will have to uh, save the village, which he does, to Doogee's chagrin. Now Lois is back on a sailboat, and she has to escape some torpedoes, and I have no idea how she did this, because Lois knows she has to escape the uh, torpedo, but has no idea how, and unfortunately for her, Superman shows up, so that's how Lois. Superman shows up and bails you out of whatever bad situation you've gotten yourself into. So, uh, after he saves Lois, for more sudden to get antsy, and eventually the sub kind of just explodes, and... Uh, they're stuck in the water like they're bobbing for apples. And I do like the pun about them spending time behind iron bars in, in prison. One of the few times when uh, the jokes in, in this show don't fall flat. Now, as far as the, as far as the ending goes, Clark Dort Lois is on vacation. And uh, she uh, says she's working is more relaxing for her. But Lois, but I thought you were vacationing. Oh, I called it off, Clark. I've decided I can find more peace and quiet right here in Metropolis. Look, how about if I take the afternoon off and show you a good time? Wonderful, Clark. Where shall we go? I thought I'd take you out sailing. Sailing? Oh, thanks, but no thanks. You know, Clark is ready to take care of Lois out sailing, and she says thanks, but no thanks. But, you know, interestingly enough, uh, Clark happened to have a sailor's hat in the drawer. But, you know, we're getting to the point where these endings don't have nearly the charm of the endings to the Fleischer cartoons or even the George Reeves episodes. So, I mentioned I didn't really care much for the uh, Satana episode in the first segment. This one was better and a little more fun. But again, this Professor Doogee could have easily been Lex Luthor. That's really, and that's really my only complaint about this episode. When you have the greatest criminal mind of our time in your toolbox, why would you use another scientific genius? Just saying. Maybe the fact they've used Luthor twice in the first four episodes of the season was part of it. So we're going to move on now to the Superboy story, Double Trouble, Double Doom. This is written by Oscar Bansal. Three explorers are lost in the remote mountain ranges. Superboy and Crypto investigate and find an alien spacecraft sawing off mountaintops in search of escaped criminals from their own planet believed to be hiding in the area. Superboy discovers that the criminal aliens have 
The three explorers held hostage and used them to threaten off any attack of Superboy as they planned to plunder a planetoid made totally of gold. Holy smokes! The explorers are prisoners! A warning! Do not try to stab us or even to follow us or these hostages will perish. Even at a range of thousands of miles, our tracking instruments will detect you. Listen, Crypto, it's up to you now. Slip aboard, but make sure they don't see you. Then you know what to do. Go! With Crypto's help, the alien criminals are brought to justice. Alright, so this episode starts off with three explorers caught in an earthquake, and that causes a rock slide. At least it appears to be an earthquake. We'll find out. We'll get to what it is in a minute. But now, I'm not sure what else is going on where these guys are, but... The narration refers to this event as a holocaust, which I'm pretty sure is overstating me a disaster. We all know of the holocaust from World War II, the millions of Jews that were killed by Nazis. I'm not sure I'm ready to put these three explorers caught in a rock slide in the same category. I'm sorry. Poor choice of words there on the part of the writers of the show. You know, especially when you think that this was written in the late 60s when they're still only about 25 years removed from World War II. You know, when I think of the word Holocaust, I immediately go back to World War II, not three explorers on the mountains getting caught in a rock slide. So Superboy finally takes off to find the explorers with some help from Crypto. No matter what happens, I love that Crypto joins him. You know, you never see Crypto with Clark Kent. He's not portrayed to be Clark Kent's dog, just Superboy's, so... Crypto's probably off having his own adventures, but as soon as he sees his master flying out of the Kent house or the general store, he's right there by his side. Ever the dutiful sidekick. If he were a horse, he'd be Superboy's noble steed. So Superboy and Crypto seem to find the cause of the uh, of the earthquakes here, and apparently it looks like some kind of flying circular saw. Yeah, you heard me say that. It's a flying circular saw. It looks like a flying saucer, but in its center it has, uh, you know, kind of a spherical blades that are just carving carving up the types of mountains here. So Superboy questions the flyer of the saucer, and he says he's tracking some criminals. All right, now. Why were you tearing up these mountains? To rout out a band of criminals from our world. We had tracked them to some place in this vicinity. Come on, Crypto. Maybe they're still alive. So, learning that, Superboy and Crypto are only happy to help. And uh, here's another rocket ship. It's uh, clear that Superboy learned his lesson from the Great Space Race. For those of you who remember that episode, uh, Superboy uh, assumed that the uh, rocket ship was driven by a threatening force, and he wound up uh, attacking the alien police, thinking they were attacking Earth. So it's good to see Superboy that at least ask questions this time before crashing the spaceship. So the criminals threatened Superboy not to follow. They're holding the... Uh, our three uh, explorers hostage. But Superboy has a plan for Crypto, and Crypto is going to uh, sneak onto the ship and find out where they go, and the criminals are going to travel to a world made completely of gold. Why not? We're bearing down on the holiday seasons as I speak, and uh, I could definitely use a trip to the planet made of gold to help with my holiday shopping. So, Crypto stowed away, and the criminals are destroying the gold planet. I guess they want the gold for themselves, and why not? So, Superboy heeded the criminal's threat and stayed on Earth, so Crypto will fly all the way back to Earth from the... Uh, gold planet to tell Superboy what's going on. And now our boy of steel is flying the saucer to the gold planet by lifting it. And I can only wonder how long all of this takes. I mean, are they flying through space instantly? I don't know. So Superboy has to do this and on the slide. So he uses his spinning trick and uh, sucks the two guys into the earth to take out the two criminals. The uh, criminals retaliate with an electric ray, but it has no effect on Superboy or his super dog. And then Superboy destroys that device and the criminals run. So now we have an aerial battle and Superboy intercepts missiles from the rocket and basically throws them back before pulling out the exhaust port of uh, the spaceship 
neutralizing the threat that way. And as far as the ending goes, Superboy is praised for how he handled the criminals. It was very clever the way you solved the problem of the hostages. We thank you, Superboy. Don't thank me. Thank Crypto here for his expert tracking. Come on, you big ham, it's time to go home. But he uh, deflects the credit to Crypto, who barks in either approval or annoyance. I really couldn't tell. So that was a better Superboy episode. You know, I find it weird, you know, after going for so going on for so many episodes about how the Superboy episodes appear to be superior to the Superman ones. Just the fact that they've made the Superman episodes 14 minutes over two parts longer just is helping those stories in a way that... The time limit does not serve the Superboy stories. The Superboy stories are still on that old format where they have to get, kind of get done in five minutes. And actually, the Superboy stories are about a minute are about a minute shorter than the Superman ones. So they have even less time to tell their story. They have to be even more straightforward. Just the fact that the Superman stories are two episodes long, almost an entire 14 minutes, gives the story so much more room to breathe, and the writers are able to tell a better story because of that. So I want to make one note before I go that the show is making less use of the uh, traditional sound and is using more dissolves and wipes to uh, show uh, transitions and the passage of time. So good on them for using uh, alternate me- methods other than the uh, little chime to uh, separate scenes. So next time I will be back to cover Superman, the, the Superman episodes, the mysterious Mr. Mist and Luminians on the Loose, and the Superboy episodes, the Trap of the Super Spaceman, and the Space Refugees. In the meantime, if you would like to contact me to leave some feedback, feedback is always welcome. You can leave that at manofscreen at gmail.com, or you can join the conversation over in the Facebook group. Just type Man of Screen Podcast in your search feed, and the show should come up. Also find the show on Twitter at Man of Screencast. And if you don't mind, why don't you leave me a review on iTunes? That'll help other people find the show. So, until next time, folks, have a good one. Take care. Bye. The Man of Screen Podcast is produced by Mike Zemo and all opinions expressed on the show are those of Mike Zemo and his guests and no one else. All music and sound clips used on the show are for review purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. All music and sound clips are copyright their original copyright owners. The Man of Screen is a member of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network and can be found at www.twotruefreaks.com. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you do, the Two True Freaks get a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra so you can shop as usual and help out the two true freaks at the same time emails of this show can be sent to manofscreen at gmail.com and you can also leave the show review on itunes that will help others find the show thank you for listening to the man of screen podcast The sun here, you know, it's a mini dwarf planet or whatever it's called. Captain Spock would know best. Also suggested that Spock wear a white tunic under his uniform because he is being downgraded from the first officer and science officer of the Enterprise. And kind of going down, back down to the kind of menial duty, you know, after the death of the, uh, the actors who played Nikki and Alex and in both Full and Fuller House. How the hell did I get to that? So basically, uh...